Rogers, Bill, I've been smoking this pot all day and I still can't get high. What time are you smoking? Well, all marijuana is the same, isn't it? That's the mistake a lot of people make. But not in Vietnam. <laughs> Well, it was one fine morning, I was knocked out of bed By a thumb-thumb rhythm I heard over my head I went into the hall to see what it could be It was a rock and roll uprising and all around me Now there's a radio station called WCDN FM Ann Arbor The home of alternative radio dio dio <laughs> I sure wish I could get one of those shirts Gary Owen, come along here, play it for us. Excuse me, gentlemen, this is an important song. Oh, we can dare and we can do United men and brothers too Their gallant footsteps to pursue And change our country's story Our hearts so stout have got us fame For soon tis known from whence we came Where'er we go they dread the name Of Gary Owen in glory Our hearts so stout have got us fame For soon tis known from whence we came Where'er we go they dread the name Of Gary Owen in glory And when the I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today on the program. I'm so excited to have Nathaniel Philbrick here. His book, The Last Stand. Um, May I call you Nat? Please do. Welcome, Nat. It's great to be here, (laughs) especially with that rousing introduction. That's right. It's not not every day you get to hear Gary Owen, but maybe it should be. Well, you know, particularly when you're talking about Custer, I think it's a good way to start every day. Exactly. Talking about Custer, which we'll be doing probably for a good portion of today's hour on Living Writers. Definitely. Um, uh, Before we go any further, I'll read your short bio, um, Nat, from the back of uh, your latest, The Last Stand, uh, Custer, Sitting Bull, and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Nathaniel Philbrick is the author of the New York Times bestsellers In the Heart of the Sea, which won the National Book Award, Sea of Glory, winner of the Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt Naval History Prize, and Mayflower, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History and one of the New York Times' 10 best books of the year. He has lived on Nantucket since 1986. And that's a great bio, and it doesn't begin to say everything, but it's it's hard to say Nantucket without thinking that you're going to go into like a, a little rhyme sometimes, like a please, limerick. Please, please. I am from you, Nantucket, but I am not the you, man from Nantucket, okay? You probably, you've got a million of them though, right now? Oh yeah, I tell you. Well, well, okay, well, now I feel like I've got you on the hot seat for that, so we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll no, move no, away from don't the, expect any the limericks. limericks. Okay, well, if, if you feel one bursting out at okay. any point. If, just... I, I will spontaneously <laughs> declaim. Yeah. Or combust. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, but we'll, let's go back to Gary Owen for a moment, because that figures um, into the history of General Custer. Um, would, would you like to start 
Tell yeah. us a little bit well, about it's, that it's song. A, it's a rousing Irish fight song <laughs> that uh, was very popular in the Civil War, and it became Custer's 7th Cavalry's special song. And so whenever Custer's 7th left Fort Lincoln or headed out into battle, or even just before a charge into battle, uh, Gary Owen was sounded. And so uh, for the... And for, was it like a bugle sound? Like, would it be a bugle rendition a bugle, and some drums, yes. perhaps? But, but wait a minute. Custer even had his own band. And so, and he had his his band leader was named Felix Vinatieri, uh, whose great grandson, by the way, uh, is I have been told is Adam Vinatieri, who was a field goal kicker for the New England Patriots before he went to the Colts. But uh, you can see the tendrils of the story reach everywhere. But we'll have to talk about that. Like, how do you reel in some of the tendrils for for a book? But yeah, go, yeah. let's go on with Gary Owen for well, the moment. Well, and so so Custer was very proud of his band, and uh, you know, and Gary Owen was the soundtrack of his life. I mean, it was all the best moments. Uh, the you know, going into battle, the the smoke, the dust. It, Gary Owen was the song. And so, uh, you know, I think when it's a the, fitting beginning. W- yeah. When would the band start? Like they'd, they'd play it on the, uh, to begin. Uh, but, but would they, they wouldn't, and, and not like you were there, Nat, I don't mean to, <laughs> no, but, but no. in your reconstruction of this historical period, do, would the band keep playing at different times or was it really more of that rallying and sort of a mental strategy of when, when We're Custer, here. There's, it's interesting. There are several accounts, one of a newspaper reporter who accompanied Custer in an earlier campaign before the Little Bighorn, uh, that uh, recounts where the Indians are, are, are coming in great numbers. And to rally his men, he tells the band, strike it up, boys. And the reporter said it was like plugging a, a galvanic battery uh, into their you know into their souls. That, you know, it just roused the men and, and gave them all sorts of energy. And then even in his first uh, major battle in the plains, uh, fought in what's now Oklahoma, the Battle of the Washita. It was fought in the winter. It was freezing, freezing cold, and they had had they had marched for miles through this you know, blizzards and and then terrible snow reflected sun. And then they had waited all night at the edge of the village, uh, waiting for dawn to come. And just as dawn, you know, the dawn rises and Custer says. Gary Owen, and they hit it, and they start, they start blowing their their bugles, and the spit freezes uh, in their instruments, and so it starts out, you know, a few rousing notes, and then it strangled squawk. So uh, uh, that still didn't stop Custer. They went in and, and took the village, and and that was the. Um... Um, and please correct me as we go along here, Nat. Was that the village that was mostly a peaceful village, which they attacked right. that first time? And so it was a bit of a... Oh, it was. Uh, and this is typical of the ambiguity and just the, you know, the tawdriness of the West, the Western wars. I mean, it, it was sort of like Vietnam in which, you know, uh, it was a conflict that required you to attack villages of largely non-combatants. And, you know, and, and no one felt good about it. Um, Custer would always try to put his action in the best possible light, but it was very controversial because it was later established he had he had attacked the the village of Black Kettle, who was actually one of the major peace chiefs among the Cheyenne, who wanted nothing to do with fighting, who was just trying to avoid this. Custer claimed that his scouts had followed warriors that were known to have uh, 
you know, attacked white settlements to this village, proving that he was harboring uh, some some guilty warriors. But the fact remained, uh, this was this glorious victory uh, was fought against a chief that had absolutely no interest in in you know conflict. And so, and the warriors weren't there. Basically, no. There and, were and so few, what yeah. and what happened was Custer was unaware that there was this little village, and then just down the river, a huge village, and he was able to secure fifty uh, primarily women and children uh, hostages and using them as a human shield, he was able to extract his his regiment uh, from, you know, they, they were about to get engulfed by these warriors, but the re- warriors refused to attack as long as, you know, obviously it would mean the death of women and children. And so, uh, and this is how Custer established his initial reputation as an Indian fighter in the West. Which is strange because what he was coming off of was like, as you mentioned earlier, the the successes, his rise, like his meteoric rise um, to to fame in the Civil War when Absolutely. he was the youngest general, two star general. Right. right. You and, know, we think of Custer because of the Little Bighorn as you know history's biggest loser, but the fact of the matter was, in the Civil War, he was one of, if not the best. Union cavalry officers in the army. He finished last in his class at West Point. I love that. In yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't a dummy. He really wasn't. He he was having a great time. And whenever he was about to flunk out, he'd buckle down, work just enough to make it. And there were plenty of people who flunked out at West Point, but Custer played perfectly. <laughs> and it was actually actual battle, uh, not the study of it, that he was destined for. He graduates goes, you know, he's there at Bull Run. He's sort of like Forrest Gump. He's at every major battle. And his and with two years later, he's he's a, a brigadier general at, at Gettysburg, and uh, he would be a two-star general by the end of the war. And when uh, General Sheridan would give Custer's wife Libby, they married during the war. He would give her the table upon which the the final peace treaty was uh, signed at Appomattox, saying, uh, "Madame, there is no officer uh, with our forces that be- better deserves this table." And so, so it is interesting because, f- from from my knowledge of hist- history, you know, when from as a kid, then you know, Custer was it's synonymous with with um with a bad like just being a, a bad general, like yes. being someone who was a killer. Or, not just that he lost, but just being also not heroic. Yeah, Eric. Um, Arrogant, um, reckless, uh, a wild-eyed warmonger. I, you know, I became interested in this story when I was fourteen, uh, nineteen seventy, and I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I saw a Little Big Man, and you know that is that is Custer as the deranged maniac, and you know, and it was great. I mean, I thought it was terrific. And this yeah. was nineteen seventy. Was this like were they trying to make a, a film about that war because of Vietnam, like to shed? It was. Sort of it was about ties, Vietnam. Or? It really was, and. Um, you know, it's just just that same kind of a sense. And, you know, you contrast it with, you know, movies really are great cultural barometer. And in 1941, uh, there was They Died With Their Boots On with Errol Flynn. In fact, that's what we were just listening to in the introduction. And that was what my parents custer, and that was done just before World War II when we were stealing ourselves to, you know, go, go to Europe and, and the Pacific. And Custer there was patriotic, true, and brave, and everything you wanted in a leader. And so, you know, Custer is an icon, and uh, and he's a lightning rod. And that's how they that's how they told the story then, because that's what the country needed. That's what the exactly the, the how. So, when in your research, how did you start 
piecing together what was true and what was the spin. Because in your book, you even mentioned that uh, Custer himself and even Sitting Bill was, they were both, in a sense, master of self-publicity at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, it's a very modern story in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... um, the media was huge. And, and both uh, Custer was, in the Civil War was a master. He had great relationships with, with reporters. And he was just, he played it perfectly. And they loved him. He was great copy. He was the boy general. And then uh, when it came to the Little Bighorn in 1876, he brought an embedded reporter with him who, who would actually die uh, on the battlefield with Custer and had been feeding stories stories that Custer had fed to him uh, to the the papers back east. And then you look to Sitting Bull. um, After the Battle of Little Bighorn, he would go into exile in Canada while the rest of his tribe was, uh, tribal members were, that stayed, were forced to uh, surrender and and go to reservations along the Missouri River. But he granted two um, interviews uh, to reporters soon after his surrender that you know helped make him one of the most famous people in America and so uh, and part of like wild buffalo bills traveling yep. and then when he show. finally surrendered to american forces and then was uh, at the standing rock sioux agency he would tour the country twice uh, the last time with buffalo bills wild west show and he would sign autographs that he sold for a dollar each and you know it you know it's it's so the media and uh, you know is, is and and you know the whole you know, fame is is a big part of the story. And we're just at the beginning. We'll take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk more. Today on Living Writers, we've got Nathaniel Philbrick here in the studio. His latest, The Last Stand. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Nathaniel Philbrick is here in the studio. His book, The Last Stand, Custer, Sitting Bull, and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Um, a quick note on the, the music. Um, uh, of course, the marvelous Brian Delaney has uh, done right by us and has found this great, uh, the last piece we heard had some um, horse and buffalo sounds um, in with the throat singers. Uh, so um, thanks, Brian. Thanks. Um, 
<laughs> yes, sort of, thanks, Brian. It's sort of mesmerizing, isn't it, Nat? Yeah. With well, the... <laughs> well the, you know, the sound of, of hooves, uh, on, you know, working their way across, it's just, it is mesmerizing, and, and it's it's the rhythm of the planes, yeah. Yes, and, and there was that clinking so that you know someone's sort of riding yep. along, and um, and you did some riding. You actually, in part of, as part of your research, you went and rode across the planes, and you went to the battle site yeah i am i cannot pretend to be much of a horseman uh, but oh, go on yeah well <laughs> it's the magic of radio right okay <laughs> believe me but uh, i did uh, ride a horse across the battlefield uh with the uh, crow tribal member charlie Realbird um as a guide uh, it was a 27 year old uh former rodeo horse named tomcat luckily he was 27 years old he could smell the fear but uh <laughs> we made it and uh it was it was just fascinating because you know you you, you, it's one of the most haunting and spiritual landscapes I've ever been to. And what you begin to realize when you're riding a horse across it is how complex the, the terrain is. And, and this is in the Black Hills that no, you're, you're... Actually, this is in uh, south-central Montana is where, where the battlefield is. In, in relation... I, you know what? We should get a map out so we can sort of um, yeah. have that to go by. Um, with Because the Black Hills, I mentioned that. I jumped Are a big to it part was, of the story, yes. And because it also has a spiritual quality mm-hmm. f- for Native Americans before... Uh, the U.S. citizens found gold there. Right, and And, and Custer was involved with that. Two years before the battle, Custer leads an expedition to the Black Hills in 1874, and it's supposedly to find a potential site for a fort. Uh, He brings along two gold miners. They discover gold, and this is just after a terrible economic depression has taken over the country. Uh, The government owes, there's $2 billion in debt, and in the past, they knew that discovering gold, whether it be in California or the Rocky Mountains, was a way to get the economy going again. And so thousands of miners flooded into the Black Hills, which was Lakota land, sacred, the holiest of holies to the Lakota. And this created an immediate problem. What do we do? And so the Grant administration attempted to cajole the Lakota into selling the Black Hills. They refused. And then, well, so then what do we do? Do we take up arms against our own miners and get them out? Well, instead they decided to... Because at that point the Lakota had kept a very peaceful. They hadn't... Right. Uh, hadn't hurt the miners, hadn't asked them to leave. No, a- absolutely. And, and in fact, the Lakota didn't spend that much time in the Black Hills. It was a holy area to which they would go annually, but it was not where they hung out all the time. It, uh, Sitting Bull referred to, to it as their food pack, where they could go to get uh, teepee poles, where they could get food and spiritual nourishment. It, you know, it was just an essential part of who they were. And his argument was that without the Black Hills, we cannot be an independent people. And so that really became the rallying cry for the Lakota. And so uh, Sitting Bull in the summer, spring and summer of 1876 said, you know, come out to, you know, he, he would not go to the reservations. And he was out in Montana on the Rosebud River. And he invited everyone who was on the reservations to come on out. And they were all indignant over the government's attempt to, uh, to buy the, the hills. And so they began to come out. And it was at this time that the government decided to launch a campaign to forcibly bring the Lakota and Cheyenne into the reservations and force them to sell the Black Hills. And so the Battle of Little Bighorn was part of a, a tawdry little war uh, that was instigated by the Grand Administration for to gold. F- for gold. 
for gold. And so, uh, you know, it was not a, you know, I think we have this tendency to look to the glory days of the American West as a bunch of, you know, the cavalry being chiseled Marlboro men out there defending innocent white pioneers. Uh, Who were going to find a new new life, right. expansion in, in its like best possible sense, not in the, but, but it, it always includes a pushing out, pushing right. through. And in this case, uh, South Central Montana, where the battle occurred, what this was Lakota hunting ground. It was legally Lakota land. There were no American settlements there. There were not even any forts. You know, it was, they were just there, man. And you know, and they, it seems this seems even more wrong. Like if you can pile wrong upon right. wrong, it is. Uh, it from is the Grand and, Administration. And, and you know, and the Grand Administration uh, seven years before had begun with the best of intentions. They were going to, uh, you know, lead with an olive branch and and uh, follow the Quakers' advice and and lead with peace rather than war. And then, you know, the way things end up in Washington, uh, Grant administration was beset by corruption and, you know, all sorts of issues. And so uh, it was basically imploding by this time. And then, you know, it all ends with instigating this terrible war. And so, um, you know, but this is this is unfortunately uh, the story of the American West. And and unfortunately, it's when when I was reading through this part, um, Nat, I also was substituting oil for gold and yes. thinking how the history is not changing so much. No, it doesn't. I mean, you know, we can we can uh, apply all sorts of uh, glorious spiritual and patriotic concepts to it, whether it's manifest manifest destiny or or whatever but uh economic prerogatives have a, a tendency to uh, to lead idealism <laughs> and um, yeah whether it's gold whether it's uh, oil uh you know it's sort of de- it has something to do with where we are. And, you know, this was part of a global process. Colonization was happening all over the world, whether it was Africa, whether it was India and the Middle East as well. And it's just different in America because, you know, we live here. <laughs> you know, it's it's a push across our own continent, and we're living with the consequences to this day. And our history classes teach us a particular way of a perspective of the history as well. Yes. I mean, and maybe they're changing. But. Right. And it changes. And it, you know, and history should change with each generation because you when we, we, we have a different perspective, obviously, with as as we move forward in time, you you try to look back and find the essence of what it was, but you'll all be always be doing it through the filter of where you're looking from. And your training is actually um Brown University and Duke University with a master's in American literature. Right. So um not a natural, like not a historian by birth. No, I. But I, now you're. It's foisted upon you. Right, you know. Well, <laughs> well I, it began for me when I moved to Nantucket. I'm trained as a journalist. You know, so I. I and I'm. Could you freelanced after school? I, and right? I worked for a sailing magazine named uh, Sailing World uh, for four years, and then freelanced and wrote some sailing books. But then in 1986, my wife and I and our young children moved to Nantucket, and uh, Moby Dick was my personal bible, and you know this was the whole holy ground of Ahab. Well, I don't know if it's holy for Ahab, but it was the holy ground of that novel. And so I became fascinated with how Nantucket uh, began, became Nantucket. So was Moby Dick one of the books then that you focused on during your time in grad school? Was yes. that when I uh, had my uh, oral orals uh, at uh, at Duke, uh, one of the books I w- that was part of it was Moby Dick. Yeah. Good old Melville. Good old M- Melville. Yes, and and so you know I so I began write, I, writing about the history of Nantucket, which led to In the Heart of the Sea, which is about the real life ship 
that was rammed by a whale that inspired the climax of Moby Dick. And and that sort of, from every book, um, the one before The Last Stand was Mayflower. And that came out of trying to get a context of, for Nantucket. I figured I had to put it, figure out all of, get some sense of New England history. And th- that was when I started reading about the pilgrims for the first time since I learned about them in third grade and right. realized there's a lot more to the story. And, uh, than brass buckles. And... Exactly. And, uh, you know, why do... Uh, Pilgrim's pants fall down because their buckles are on their hats. It's a little <laughs> pilgrim humor. Sorry. Just a little bit. But um, We're going to get that limerick out of you. Right. Yeah. Okay. This is, yeah, we're, we're circling back. But, but, you know, and that was a book much like this one where, uh, you know, we think of the Mayflower as the iconic beginning of America. And with that book, that book, which ends with a cataclysmic native English uh, war, King Philip's War, I said, okay, so if this is how it begins, where does it lead to? And I said, it leads to the Battle of Little Bighorn. And so that's really what led me to to The Last Stand. What And, and what led you to make that? Because I would think it's sort of a jump from the, the, the freelancing, the working, the journalism, to pursuing these books of great detail and history and research. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. of course, there's elements of all of that involved if you're, you're, you're doing a story uh, piece um, in journalism. But, but how, yeah, how did this happen? Yeah, well, that? for me, it began, uh, it, it began uh, as, I guess you would have called me an independent scholar on Nantucket, where I began to research a book about Nantucket. And I lived in the archives um, for a number of years learning about the island. And was it with the plan to pitch this as a book idea, like a history? I began, I had, I had thoughts about maybe even going to graduate school, um, but that would have required leaving the island, and thank God I never did that. And But I got some articles uh, published in New England Quarterly, for example, which is a scholarly journal about New England history, about Nantucket. And then I, I I, to a small press on Nantucket, sold the idea of a general history of the island, and that would become a way offshore. And with that, each chapter is a person. It's a very sort of journalistic narrative approach to history. And so each chapter is about a person, but through that chapter, you tell, I tell the history of the island through that period. And so you go from person to person, and by the end, you've worked your way through uh, the whaling era on Nantucket. And and so that was really where I, I learned my method of, of, you know, really going to the archives, uh, you know, using details to try to bring the broader concepts of the past to life in a very specific way. I, I'm interested in character, story, uh, it's narrative nonfiction that is historical. I, I try to bring sort of a journalistic sense of life as lived to the past is really what I'm trying to do. I'd like, I want you to sort of see, smell uh, what was going on then. And inevitably that requires you to really try to get under the skins of, you know, that totally different worldview, different spirituality, uh, whole different ranges of, of uh, experiences and, and concepts. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's just, I, it's what I do now. And uh, my sort of my life, my project, life project is to just try to keep figuring out what makes us American. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I move from topic to topic, then it's not chronological, it's sort of what one leads to the other. And what makes us American? So that's, when did you, when did that surface for you, Nat, that idea? Yeah, it was really within the heart of the sea, uh, which was, you know, brought all of my Nantucket history. Uh, which was published 2000? 2000, right. 
And um, and that with that, what I wanted to do was I didn't want this to be a local New England maritime story. I wanted someone uh, in Peoria to to read the first uh, paragraph in which I talk about whales being you know oil deposits of of their time. I wanted to capture so, someone's imagination and say, "Geez, you know, I didn't think of whaling in this way." You know, try and and so that that was. I really wanted to bring to life a you know not only the survival story that's at the center of in the heart of the sea but the um you know what was going on in American history that Nantucket was was a quintessential American community you know they were Quaker pa- pacifists but when it came to whales they had a completely different <laughs> uh, approach Melville called them Quakers with a vengeance and so so I I you know from the beginning with that book it was about America my next book then was Sea of Glory which is America's first ocean-going voyage of discovery, sort of like James Cook of America, led by Charles Wilkes. And it would be this voyage that m- most people have never heard of, the U.S. US exploring expedition of 1838 to 42, go around the world. They would uh, bring back first proof that a continent was at the bottom of the world, Antarctica. They would bring back so many specimens and artifacts that the Smithsonian Institution was founded to house them, along with the U.S. Botanic Garden. You know, which is still there in in Washington, and so that led me, you know, to America out into the world, and then I wanted to go to those iconic beginnings with Mayflower, and now with the Last Stand. Part of my other three books has been arguing that you know we Americans love the sense of a wilderness, um, and usually we think of the West. Well, before that, there was the sea. It was really only after the gold rush that the American West of you know of of lore began, and so with this, I wanted to. Do it in the context of having explored the wilderness of the water and and go west and see the continuities, the differences. And instead of a departure, it really felt like a culmination. And we're going to take a short break. And then I've got more questions for you, Nat. So we'll be right back. Okay. And that was so so nicely said. And And it'll be interesting to hear what the next project like how you find those pieces, what it what it means to be what makes an American. Yes. Okay. Um, you're listening to Living Writers today. Nathaniel Philbrick is here. His book, The Last Stand, Custer, Sitting Bull, and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Nathaniel Philbrick is here. His book, The Last Stand. Um, and last night you were actually on American Experience, Nat, as right. as one of uh, with the because it was a program on the the whaling. Uh, uh, industry so so people are coming to to ask you about like the like i guess talking about whales as the carriers of the oil of their time yeah yeah it's it's funny it was uh to to sort of see that that was something that rick burns filmed me about three years ago in an interview a couple hours and it's incredible he's an incredible filmmaker and particularly interviewer he he asks the kinds of questions that get you thinking in front of the camera you know you don't there's just no way you can just sort of answer him in a pat way you know and and uh, so it was a great experience and then to you know have it now uh, a film uh, you know that many years later is is kind of interesting but uh, it was a great experience and then and you were also I saw in your blog on your website you've also just been to Dallas because there was an opera opening of the uh, the opera of Moby Dick yeah oh you know and that was another uh, you know wonderfully surreal experience uh, about Two, three years ago, um, Jake Heggie and Gene Shear, who were working on the opera Moby Dick, you know, talk about, uh, you know, a tall order. That's an epic. <laughs> yeah. And we had just a great dinner on Nantucket. You know, they had read In the Heart of the Sea, and, you know, we just talked about Melville into the night, and it was terrific. And so... Over the, I've been getting emails from from the two of them over the last couple of years as they work on it, and uh, they got some incredible um, uh, singers to sign up. I mean, this and this was a commission for the the newly brand new uh, Dallas Opera House, and we went. My wife Melissa and I went to it a couple two weekends ago, and it was incredible, absolutely fantastic. You wouldn't believe. Uh, how they how they pulled it off? It's not only just a wonderful distillation of the of the book, but uh, it's beautiful songs and the, uh, the the choreography, the the set design, just fantastic. And it's been getting incredible reviews in the New York Times, the AP, all over. And uh, uh, you know, just the power of Melville to you know to to reappear in all sorts of guises. Yeah, yeah and the the boy from Pittsburgh. Doing you cuz you were born in Boston but then you grew up in yeah. in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So uh how unexpected that your destiny is so clearly linked almost. Yeah, it has a lot this. to do with my father uh who was an Ameri- was a now a retired English professor with a specialty in American maritime literature. And so he taught Moby Dick on a fairly regular basis and uh, he's the one who taught me how to sail and things like that. So um I've been following in his wake uh, to a certain extent and you know he now is he and uh, my mother are retired on Cape Cod and they read every chapter I write in manuscript and you know uh, bring out the red pencil, and they've been a very important part of my process. Yeah, and your revision, your drafts for that part of your process, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, my dad's uh, been a huge help, as is my mother, and... you know, it's it's as a writer. You know, you're you're working by yourself, and and you know, my process is seventy five percent of my time is research and or and taking notes and taking notes on the notes and organizing that material to when I can finally write a chapter. And it's the writing process that for me is the huge is what I'm working towards is what I love. But it just takes a lot of time in the archives and just sitting there and reading. And so uh, it's nice to have others to bounce things off of. Um, as you move along. Well, let's let's hear 
part. Let's, will okay. you read something sure. for us? Yeah, I'm going to read a part from the preface of The Last Stand, uh, just to set it up a little bit. This is, Custer uh, has finished up with the Civil War uh, as, a, as a hero. Uh, it's two years later, and after two years of inactivity, he is now uh, uh, commander of the 7th Cavalry they, in, in Kansas, uh, where they are trying to subdue the Cheyenne. And this is one of Custer's, it's 1867, one of Custer's first campaigns, and uh, they're, they're marching across the plains of Kansas, uh, and Custer was a flamboyant type. I mean, he, he dressed uh, in a buckskin, he, he immediately became, you know, took on a Western persona, and along with that, he, he, he's been called the, the cavalier in buckskin. Uh, he, he saw himself in a nostalgic 17th century kind of way, and he had a pack of English greyhounds that he took along with him. And so they're they're chasing. Yeah, the, that's so odd, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, here he is with his in his buckskin and with his dogs, and and so they're they're marching along through the plains, a, a country about which he knows very little. And the, uh, a a herd of antelope come by, and his dogs take off in pursuit. And Custer says, "Well, I'm going to go f- follow him." So he 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 on this big horse, uh, bolt away from the regiment, and soon they're completely lost in, the, in this grassy environment in the plains. And as he's chasing... And alone, right? Custer, uh, the horse, and the dogs. Yes, uh, <laughs> alone. And, um, and, and then, at this moment, he sees his first buffalo. Um, you know, he'll later see hundreds of thousands of these creatures, but it's like an omen, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's sort of why. I, yeah, I went for this in the beginning. But he sees his first buffalo, uh, and he'll see a lot of them, but he'll never see one this big. And so he takes off in pursuit. In the two years since Lee's surrender at Appomattox, Custer had come to long for the battlefield. Only amid the smoke, blood, and confusion of war, had his fidgety and ambitious mind found peace. But now, in the spring of 1867, as his trusted horse galloped to within shooting range of the buffalo, he began to feel some of the old, wild joy. Amid the beat of hooves and the bellows-like suck and blast of air through his horse's nostrils emerged the transcendent presence of the buffalo, ancient, vast, and impossibly strong in its thundering charge across the infinite plains. He couldn't help but shout with excitement. As he drew close, he held out his pearl-handled pistol and started to plunge the barrel into the dusky funk of the buffalo's fur, only to withdraw the weapon so as to, in his own words, prolong the enjoyment of the race. After several more minutes of pursuit, he decided it was finally time for the kill. Once again, he pushed the gun into the creature's pelt. As if sensing Custer's intentions, the buffalo abruptly turned toward the horse. It all happened in an instant. The horse veered away from the buffalo's horns, and when Custer tried to grab the reins with both hands, his finger accidentally pulled the trigger and fired a bullet into the horse's head, killing him instantly. Custer had just enough time to disengage his feet from the stirrups before he was catapulted over the neck of the collapsing animal. He tumbled onto the ground, struggled to his feet, and faced his erstwhile prey. Instead of charging, the buffalo simply stared at this strange, outlandish creature and stalked off. Horseless and alone in Indian country, except for his panting dogs, George Custer began the long and uncertain walk back to his regiment. Thank you, Nat. You're welcome. Um, so that's in the preface of The Last Stand, the very beginning. And it's it's strange listening to you read that. Um, the buffalo, in a way, is, we said, like, oh, it's, it's like an omen of, of sort of what's to come. But but in a way, the, the buffalo seems to stand for um, like the 
the Lakota in some ways, where instead of attacking right at that moment, just looked and then walked off. Well, and, and absolutely, and and you know, and this is so much of my process is is unconscious. <laughs> you know, when I you know I, I wrote that preface thinking, yeah, for some reason this really resonates with where I'm going, and I didn't really know where I was going, and then as I worked my way through the book. Um, you know, because each chapter is discreet in its own way. I, so, you, so you wrote the preface first. Yes, yes. I, I began with that. And I really, you know, I knew sort of where the book was headed. But, you know, I had a, a, a tentative structure. And then uh, when it came to the opening uh, shots being fired at the Little Bighorn, uh, it, it turns out that Sitting Bull, when uh, first realized that his village was under attack, did not tell his warriors to attack in kind. He said, wait a minute. You know, maybe we can get these guys to negotiate. Maybe they want to talk. And so he uh, took the rifle from his nephew, One Bull, gave him his shield, which his father had made, and said, you know, go out there and see if you can make peace. And so One Bull went out there, and the soldiers were not about to make peace, and, and his buddy beside him got shot uh, through the uh, through the uh, you know through the body, and and One Bull dragged him back, and Sitting Bull said you know, attack. And so, you know, and I think, you know, that is very much sort of there uh, in that incident that uh, that Custer had way back, uh, you know, more than 10 years earlier on the plains of Kansas. And, you know, this is, it's funny, this is uh, uh, spirituality and visions are a big part of the story. And it's not just Sitting Bull, who uh, has a week before the battle has a vision of soldiers falling upside down into a Lakota Libby camp. Libby Custer. Libby Custer, uh, as the uh, 7th Cavalry is leaving uh, Fort Lincoln, uh, in the, it's, a, it's a misty morning. And as the, the sun causes the fog to dissipate, she sees an optical illusion of half of the, the, the regiment in the sky, reflected in the sky, uh, you know, as if on their way to heaven. And, you know, and she saw this as, you know, it, it broke her heart. She saw, you know, she saw the future. And, you know, with a disaster, we have a tendency, these forebodings, you know, take on uh, hindsight uh, importance that they wouldn't if it hadn't been a disaster. But, you know, this this sort of visionary aspect is, is, is a huge part of the story. And I think, you know, you have to take it seriously if you're going to be true to the participants. And and so how are you? So what what do you mean by that, Nat? Because if take it seriously, like is this part of the research with the, and and the the visions? Is that why you include in the book there these wonderful pictographs as well? Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, this book more than anything I've ever worked on, seeing is a tremendous part of how I came to the battle, and I didn't really expect it. You know, usually I'm in the archives reading, 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 mm-hmm. reading, reading. With this book, I spent, uh, I had five different research trips out west, sometimes spending weeks at a time, wandering over the plains, following Custer's path uh, to the Little Bighorn, going to various and agencies. why? Like, what made this different? Well, because the need when, for you go, it. when you go out there, um, it's largely the way it was. Uh, you know, when I'd go to a historic site with Mayflower, there was always a Dunkin' Donuts across the street or something like that. It, you know, it just was not, this, in many instances, I was seeing what... Custer and and, and uh, Sitting Bull would have seen back then, and and without the gravestones, without the gravestones, and you know, and so you go to the right, you go to the battlefield, and it's pretty much the way it was, but they're it's speckled with with gravestones, which you know adds a certain element to it. But yeah, and it's it it was, and also it's just the the, the sense of space, the um, the big sky. 
and I found it very, it reminded me so much of being at sea. It's a very oceanic sense of distance. And, um, and, and so it was very, you know, and I found a lot of similarities between an itinerant uh, Lakota village and uh, cavalry on the move and, and a ship at sea. Um, that, that makes, that makes perfect sense, Nat. Um, with the, with the facts, as you, you were saying in his own words, the part that you read to us, just to go back to this briefly before our break, um, uh, like in Custer's own words, like what happened, how did you find that? Like, how did you, what sort of, uh, and, and the, and the fact that you said sitting bull, um, sent you know, uh, one bull out right. and, and didn't want to fight right away and said to wait to attack. Like, cause those are, that seems like how you're presenting them, um, are as facts, not as something like, uh, like for me, I guess I, I feel like the things that I keep saying, uh, keep falling on the side of sitting bull and the Lakota and saying, look, this was so wrong, yep. <laughs> you know? So those are the facts I keep presenting. But, but if you're, how are you finding the facts within all your research yeah, well, the evidence, to know yeah, instead e- of the spins. On right, it. right. The evidence is a huge part of it. The, uh, For example, what I just read comes from Custer's own words, and you know he was the only one there. He would write his own account of it, My Life on the Plains. And what's interesting, it's usually, you know, he is the hero of that book, but this was the one incident in which, you know, he, he describes himself basically being an idiot. And uh, he almost seems to revel in the fact that he took this reckless chance. He nearly killed himself. And I thought it was a, a very self-revealing attitude to take, you know, that, you know, he, he was proud of, you know, that he nearly killed himself doing this wild, wild-eyed, nutty stunt. And, you know, it's, it's, that's Custer. And then when it came to uh, figuring out, uh, you know, what ha- Sitting Bull's actions at the Little Bighorn, there, was, there, there were many, everyone under Custer's command was killed, but there were obviously a lot of Lakota and Cheyenne warriors who would, test, would be interviewed. And uh, there's, there's several different witnesses that, that speak of Sitting Bull at the very beginning saying, wait a minute, let's see if they want to negotiate. And so you, you piece, these were interviews that were conducted much later, uh, and there were interpreters involved. So, you know, that adds layers of possible ambiguity. Um, and who's asking the questions? Yes. And, it, and, and one, in, in one instant, instant, it was a, a writer, a re, you know, uh, who was, would write a, a very good biography of Sitting Bull. And others, sometimes it was cavalry officers. And, and that would sometimes uh, make the warrior say what, you know, he thought the officer wanted to hear. Well, let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll hear more from Nathaniel Philbrick, his book, The Last Stand. You've got living writers on WCBN FM. Ann Arbor will be back.
ancient tradition that the world will be consumed in fire at the end of 6,000 years is true, as I've heard from hell. The whole creation will be consumed and appear infinite and holy, whereas it now appears finite and corrupt. Welcome back. You've got WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, Living Writers. Today, Nathaniel Philbrick is here. His book, The Last Stand. Um, thanks thanks for coming on the program today, Ned. Well, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's, been, it's great. And you're on, a, you've, you're on a book tour, and you said you're in week two currently, and you've got... Uh, where are some of the places... Because I know you'll be going to Elliott Bay Book Company out in Seattle. And, yes. And, and heading, I'll be heading to Albuquerque, uh, Santa Fe, uh, San Francisco, um, uh, Memphis, Oxford, Mississippi, uh, you know, and, and Kansas then, City. And then you you come back home um, to Nantucket for the grand finale. Yes, yeah, uh, in at, July. The Mar- at the Maritime Museum? Yes, uh, I, am, I am the founding director of the Egan Maritime Institute. And so it's we have a kind of a tradition where I, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, after, after uh, headed out, I come back home and, and speak there. And uh, we actually host it. And our, our own hall isn't that big, but there's a nice, uh, good-sized... Uh, Originally a congregational church, um, and uh, and uh, it's right on Orange Street, and it's it's about four hundred people, and it's it's a fun place to speak. Oh, that's so. That's it's. You won't be speaking in the coffin house then. I'll I'll be doing some stuff there, but okay. yeah, because <laughs> it's for someone here in Ann Arbor that just does sound so intriguing. Probably for the old New Englanders, yeah, it's see, like well, see, of course there's a coffin house in town, which yeah. is now a theater. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, the name coffin is. <laughs> yeah, you know, we begin to take it for granted on Ann. Nantucket, but you got to, re- yeah, we have to remember it's a little, it, it creates images of, of, uh, of darkness. Of yes. the grim. Yes. <laughs> um, well, and speaking of, of um, names, I thought it was interesting in the, like in your, in the chapter hard ass uh, that you have here, uh, Nat, um, in the last stand, um, there's a story that you relay uh, uh, relate about Custer in the lead um, with the Michiganders. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, did you want to? Uh, right. Well, he has, Custer. This is probably the only time in the tour you'll you'll mention this. <laughs> right, but it's it's a very important part about Custer because uh, Custer uh, was a. Uh, was was born in Ohio, but his sister uh, married a guy from Monroe, Michigan. And so Custer would live with them when he was quite young, get educated in Monroe. And it would be in Monroe during the Civil War that he would meet his future wife, Libby Bacon, uh, whose father was a judge in Monroe. Uh, they would, uh, although they were a military couple and were always, you know, living all over the country, Monroe was their home. And during the Civil War, uh, uh, at the Battle of the Gettysburg, uh, some have argued that if it wasn't for Custer, uh, Jeb Stuart might have punched through uh, the Union forces and met up with Pickett, who was doing his famous Pickett's Charge. And this would have turned the Gettysburg into a, a great Confederate victory. But uh, Custer was there with his Michiganders and uh, sort of... Uh, took charge and said, come on, you Michiganders, and, and took off. Um, uh, he said, come on, you Wolverines. That's sorry. I got to get this right. Jeez. <laughs> this is sacrilege. Please. My apologies. But Wolverines. Wolverines, of course. <laughs> that was with the spirit. That yeah. was... <laughs> Go blue, right? Go blue. Yeah. And uh, so he said, yeah, go blue. Go, you Wolverines, into battle. And, uh, and, and they were uh, outnumbered, but met 
uh, Stuart's forces and push them back. And some have argued uh, that this this saved Gettysburg and potentially the Union. And Custer once again was there. So go Michigan. It's a huge part of, of this story. And and thanks for thanks for telling it. Sure. Thanks, yeah. Nat. I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't resist that actually. Um, but and so that so that was part of the research. Did you get that at Clements Library or where? where, where uh, did you... I didn't get that at Clements, but I'm looking forward to come back to Clements a lot with my next book, which we can talk about later, which will be about American Revolution because they have a just incredible collection there. But I will have to say, I was at the Clements Library a couple weeks ago just and getting a tour of their incredible collection and was shown uh, some a journal from the Civil War in which the the guy had done a bunch of sketches and there in one of the sketches is Custer and I go wow <laughs> you know, I guess I'm seeing him everywhere, but I it, and it was an image of Custer I have not seen, and I've seen a lot of images of Custer. So um, that was a that was an extraordinary experience, and uh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a you you this is Ann Arbor is a very special place. Well, thanks for visiting us, and and keep coming back, Nat. Of course, <laughs> not that I'm the one to say it. I'm not the ambassador, but um, but if if I if if I could be, I would yes, uh, absolutely give you the key to the city there. Okay. <laughs> um, and so so we were talking about research then again, but let's let's go let's let's go towards let's tack towards the writing to use a sailing term. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, just to be corny, right? Um, so when you're when you're writing and and you're you've got your research and you've been living and immersed in the readings of this and imaginings of the time, you said like the, what's the religion? What's the what's the motivations uh, mm-hmm. happening in that time? And then you go to write the chapter and you say that you you do it often with it's character driven for you. Can you um, tell us a little bit about the voice and? Who you consider when you're writing? Who are you writing for? Who is yeah. your audience? Well, you know, I I uh, had um, I I went to grad school. I sort of had academic uh, ambitions at one point, and at that point was, and this was just when I was getting started writing about Nantucket, and uh, and so I had sort of a, you know, an a, a academic uh, stiffness to my writing. And when I I did a sort of proposal for the book that would become away offshore and I showed it to uh, Mimi Beeman who's who recently passed away tragically but she was the uh, she owned a bookstore on on Mitchell's called uh, called Mitchell's in Nantucket and she just was the she's the most well was the most well-read person I ever knew and she read this and she said I can't sell this this is too academic and you know crestfallen I went back and I rewrote that preface over and over again with that sort of so with you know what is the voice I want who do I want to read this and so I worked at it worked at it worked at it and I, and I I and I now look back at the preface of a way offshore as really where I found the voice it's you know it's something where I'm trying to bring I'm not dumbing it down I'm trying to uh, portray the past in an accessible way that uh, uh, brings the complexity of the past to life but in a very concrete because you mentioned details. Yes. Yeah. 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 And um, and and so it's it's and it's a voice that I keep trying. You know, it's it varies a little bit with each book. But the big challenge of writing um, history is that you, you your source material uh, takes you in all sorts of different directions and ver- often very dry factual, uh, you know, it, you know stuff. And it's hard to then assemble all of that and then deliver with 
a point of view and a voice that is your own. And and that is, that's the big challenge. Well, obviously. yeah, that's what you've set yourself up to do and continuing. It seems to be this is your life's work now. Right, right. And so it's it's that's that's it's it's a challenge. And so when I'm when I'm working on a book, uh, you know, I'm reading all of this, um, you know, history books and you know, and just all sorts of materials. But I also try to read novels as I'm doing it. It's sort of keep, you know, Moby Dick is a regular I go back to and and uh, Cormac McCarthy, Faulkner, and, and just trying oh, to... Oh, so not necessarily novels of the time or no, pieces no, generated this is just, of the this era. this is just okay. to keep my, I don't know if it's my chops or, or just sort of keep that sort of... The lyric alive yeah, in some yeah, way, the rhythms I, of language. You know, I hate to describe it as poetry, but it's... it's oh, uh, you know, no, it's, go but ahead. It, Why but not? It, but it's that kind of, uh, you know... So, it's almost a music, and um, it's it's just nice to have uh, sort of that ringing in the back of my mind when I'm you know slogging through all this other stuff, and which is really a, a challenge of organization. And um, and you know then once I get it organized, then try to say it in a way, deliver it in a way that um, you know it, uh, is engaging and uh, and you know hopefully delivers it in a way that, uh, you know, resonates. And it's concrete, like you said. Yeah. And using, working from an image rather than, because as, as you're reading through all the, the facts and you're accumulating them and, and sketching out like a scaffolding of a structure, I think you have to keep going back to like, what is the story? Like, why did that moment of Custer's uh, life on the plains with the buffalo yeah. mean something to you that you needed to to lead with, like right. touch on. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and I, I think different from probably most historians, I, I'm always the, the mythic element of existence, um, is important to me. And I, I'm not quite sure how it's important to me, but I think it's primarily important to me because it was important to the people I'm writing about. And, um, and I, and I, and I think these stories should have resonances that are more resonances that are more than just, okay, from, this happened, this happened, this happened. No, I mean, it happened in a way that we still want to know about it. And so I'm trying to to uh, conjure um, uh, those feel, spiritual and metaphoric feelings um, in, uh, out of, you know, the sort of the he, he said, she said, uh, very sort of what happened of the past. What makes us American. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, America is, you know, we, this is a, we are, like it or not, there's a spiritual force going on here. Um, you know, who knows, <laughs> you know, the source and the and the eventual direction, but there's, it's something going on. And it's not, you know, it's, 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 and, and so I'm trying to, in my, you know, imperfect way, try to uh, create a sense of that uh, in my books. Well, you've done it. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> well, and I, not that it's over. Because yeah, no. your current project that you're looking forward to doing is... Yeah, I'm, I'm to the American Revolution, uh, Boston. And, you know, looking to a small community under enormous stress, uh, you know, and exploring, was it just a burst of ideological uh, grasp of liberty or were there some darker things going on? And I believe there were a lot of darker things. So <laughs> I like the darker things. Things have to build towards a horrible climax with all my books. So. <laughs> <laughs> well... Thanks for being here today, Nat, and and for and 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 look, we'll look forward to the next book. Um, it, Me too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because maybe it'll be in another four years or or so. But we'll I'll look forward to the moment of talking with you again um, today on the program. Nathaniel Philbrick, his book, The Last Stand, Custer, Sitting Bull, and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I'm T Hetzel. You've got living writers. Until next time.